There we go. So they have given up everything for Jesus. They've given up reputations, they've given up their families, they've given up their, their livelihoods, and they've given up their lives. And yet Jesus has just dropped the bombshell, well, that he is going to go somewhere that the disciples cannot follow. They can't come with him. So end of last week, 13 verse 33, he says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. Just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And in this passage, and as the passage unfolds, as the upper room discourse moves on, it increasingly brings into focus the fact that what the disciples are to do without Jesus. How are they going to cope? How are they going to go on without Jesus, feeling so much out of their depth? And what we've been explaining over the past couple of weeks in these, these sessions in John is that there are a number of parallels between the disciples then and where we are now. So them and their situation, the, the uncertainty of what's coming of life without Jesus and where we are as a church as we think about the future. Of course, for them, it was a whole lot bigger, a whole lot more scary. The mountain before them was huge and it was growing. It was terrifying. But for us, as we consider the future as Maudlin Road Church, we think about church plants, possibly. We think about doing something with this building or another building, which means we can be more intentional in our training and our discipling and uh, reaching people. So there is a mountain there for us too. It feels pretty daunting, pretty uncertain. And in life, when our brain just sort of slips into neutral or glides into autopilot, isn't it easy to kind of consider the, the just-supposes, the, the what-ifs? For us as a church, what if, what if core folk leave and move on? What if we don't find a building or a way of developing? Or for us as individuals, what if I lose my job? What if I can't pay my mortgage? What if I'm not able to find accommodation, somewhere to live? And yet when that happens, when those thoughts plague us, I take it we're living in the future, essentially. That's what's going on. And it stresses us out because there are so many uncertainties. We don't know what's coming around the corner. And we're trying to make plans based on that. I take it we need to learn to live for today, to live with contentment, to, to know that there are enough worries for tomorrow, but to live and trust today. As someone's put it, we need to learn to change the, the what-ifs to the even-ifs. What if I lose my job? No, even if I lose my job. I will trust Jesus. He is in charge. He knows best. And he is working out his plans and his purposes. What if I don't get that, that thing or that person that I want? No, no, even if I don't get it or them, I will trust Jesus. He is in charge. He knows best. He's working out his plans and purposes. Moving from a what if to an even if. And we say, well, that all sounds good on paper. But how do I do that? What about when I'm awake at night and I can't sleep? What about when it's the first thing that I think about as I wake up in the morning? Well, once again, these verses in John 14, I think we'll find, are incredibly relevant to us. They're very contemporary. Maybe for you as you wrestle with uncertainty of the future. 
of plans for the years to come. Maybe for us as a church, as we think about, well, what might the Lord have us do uh, in months and years to come? I don't know if you noticed it when Charlie read it for us, but just the contrast between the stress and the panic that we can have about life, and we can get so knotted up about, and, and the peace that Jesus talks of. So verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Or verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. These are words for disciples, that they're meant to bring us calm in the midst of our stress. They're meant to give us the right focus. They're they're for disciples in the first century and disciples in the 21st century. So what tactics does Jesus give? How are we not to be troubled? Well, it's a big passage and there's a lot to say, so we're going to leave an awful lot for another time. I'm simply going to look at two things, and I think they are relatively new things for John's Gospel. So the way that John works, you'll know if you've been around week after week, is that he will come back to different topics again and again and add a bit and look at it from a different side. I think these are two relatively new things for John's Gospel. The first one, I think he says to us, we'll come on to that in a bit. He says, have a humble confidence in Jesus. He will finally take you to be with his Father. Let me read those first verses again to us. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So when we feel overwhelmed by the mountains of life, so when we feel overwhelmed in the midst of the mountains, never forget that the final destination for Christians always outweighs the difficulties of the now. That's not escapism, that's not just head in the sand and hoping it all goes away. But because of the cross, because of the resurrection, you can have confidence, Jesus says. Confidence, ultimately, that this world is not your home and he will come back for his people. And as he leaves his disciples now, it is scary and it is daunting, but that is him putting that plan into action. That is the reason that he came. Now look again at verses 2 to 4, and I think there are two questions we need to pick up on, um, because it sounds slightly enigmatic. It sounds a little bit like Jesus is heading off to God's hotel, and he's going to get the beds ready and to plump the pillows for us. So two questions for us. What is this house, and what is Jesus doing there? Now the Father's house, that title has actually already come up in John's Gospel. Very interesting. It came back right at the beginning in chapter 2. It was another Passover, and Jesus was there at the temple three years before. Let me read it to you. 2 verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. 
He scattered the coins as the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The temple, of course, was where God symbolically dwelt among his people. It was where they went to sacrifice, where they went to pray, where they meant to meet with God. It represented, actually, where God really dwelt. That the temple on earth was the shadow of where he, he really is. Jesus was going to the reality, to where God dwells, to his Father's house, to heaven. And I take it that he's getting it ready. I think that means he's preparing the means for them to get there, to arrive. That seems to make the most sense, as you see the, re- the commentators wrestle with this one. He's not plumping cushions, he's, he's making it possible to get to the Father. That's how he's preparing the house. He's dying on the cross, he's paying for sins, he's rising again. So it's his journey that opens up the means for us to reach there. And so we see why it is utterly vital that he goes. Because without Jesus going to the cross, we would not be able to come to the Father. Heaven would be an impossibility. But it's a certainty for his people. He's made it possible for us to get there. And it says he will come back and get us to. See, I will come back and take you to be with me. Which is why in verse 1 he says, trust me, believe in me. The folk he was speaking to were, were Jews. They knew that they were to trust God. And Jesus says, believe in me, trust me too. It, it would be practically blasphemy if he were not divine. And into our relativistic culture, this culture that says, well, all truth is truth, isn't it? Come these exclusive claims of Jesus. And they jar our ears, and they jar the ears of those around us. I've recently come across the phrase of something being a Humpty Dumpty term. It comes from a little section in Lewis Carroll's Alice Through the Looking Glass, uh, where Humpty Dumpty says, when I use a word, he says in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, says Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, says Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Within our culture, people give different meanings to different words. They seek to relativise truth. They say, well, you have your truth, and I have my truth. And that's okay, just don't try and impose your truth on me, they say. Truth has become a Humpty Dumpty term. But it seems to me it's inconsistent. If you, if you go to the doctors, and it is bad news, and it is really bad news, then it strikes me that that is truth. It can't be that the doctor has his truth, he says, you've got cancer, and I say, well, no, it's just a cold. That doesn't work. That is truth. Or think of the, the aeroplane pilots as he's coming into land, and the air traffic controller says, no, 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 you're missing, you're, you're, going, you're going for the motorway. He says, no, no, you have your truth, I'll have my truth, thank you. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem that we, we live as if truth is relative. There is such a thing as truth. It seems to be absolute. And so Jesus says, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. The only words of power and hope and future and peace for those who want to see the Father's house. It seems to me that these these words, that they verge on, on irony, if you see where the Gospel is going. In less than 24 hours, the situation that Jesus will walk into will be that his lifeless and broken body will be hanging on a cross. And so if someone's put it, I am the way, it's spoken by one whose way was the ignominious shame of a Roman cross, the death of despised and debased criminals. I am the truth, is spoken by one about to be condemned by lying witnesses, one who was generally not believed by his own people, by his own family. I am the life, uttered by one whose battered corpse would shortly rest in a dark tomb, sealed up by the authorities. And yet it's through this death, it's through this resurrection, that the way is opened up for us to come to the Father's house. It's why this truth is, is absolute and not relative. He's the only one who can make it possible. That's why we can have humble confidence, because our destination is sure. We know where we're going. The, um, the, the pastor theologian, Don Carson, um, puts it like this very helpfully, I think. He says, because Jesus' own way was the cross, he himself became the way for others. As the Lamb of God, he took away the sins of the world. As the good shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep. The Lamb dies, the world lives. The shepherd dies, the sheep live. Jesus is the gate by which men enter and find life. He is their way. The way of Jesus is the cross. And the way of the disciples is Jesus. I'd urge you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this evening, to go to Jesus and to find life. Because it's the only place you will find it. As you trust him. And if we have Jesus, then we have enough for life. And enough to get us through our death as well. The story is famously told of a, um, of a church father from many moons ago called John uh, Chrysostom. He was brought in before the Roman emperor. Uh, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. And he responded, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, says the emperor. No, you cannot, he says, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Jesus is enough. Have confidence in the face of your mountains, your stresses, your worries, your concerns. He is enough and at the end of the day he will take you to be with the Father. And he's the only one who can do that. And when you're anxious and you're tempted and you're looking elsewhere, then look back to Jesus. Look to the one who's prepared a way for you to the Father. Look ahead to the Father to life forever with him through Jesus. And in John 14, it's not just 
kind of out there somewhere. If we were to leave it here this evening, we might think that Jesus is the army general and he's there urging us on. He's seeking to convince us of why we should, why we should press on for him. But he's almost aloof or removed from everyday living, from, from reality. He's an encourager, but he's an absent encourager nonetheless. And yet what I want to see from the, the next section in the passage is that all of the Trinity is at work in Christians to, to help us finally to be with the Father. So second point, he says, have a humble confidence in the Spirit. He comes from the Father and helps us to do works greater than Jesus. So, we've seen that Jesus has prepared a way for us to be with the Father forever. And he's going to come back and take us to be with him. Take us to heaven. But what happens until then? What is life like now? What are to be our priorities? What's our our job description, if you like, as Christians now? Well, have a look at a few verses with me. Verse 12 to 15, first of all. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. Or verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So what are we to do then? What is to be our priority while we're on the earth now before the Lord Jesus comes to take us to be with him and the Father? Well, we're to do his works You see, if we're those who love him, we keep his commands, we obey his teaching, we we live a life that honours him. Now that means, of course, there's a contradiction in terms to say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm not that keen on his commands, actually. I'm not that keen on living the Christian life. I'm just not sure that works from these verses. A friend a while ago said that. They said, well, it boiled down to this, I love Jesus, and I think he wants the best for me which means he wants me to be happy, which means I'm going to sleep with my boyfriend and I'm going to have too much to drink. That's basically what it came down to. Now the issue, of course, is that he does want you to be happy, he does want you the best for you, but the way to be most happy is to obey his commands, to live with him as boss. That's what you were made for. Paradoxically, the Bible says, that is true freedom when we live for God. So life now, we love Jesus and we show that through how we live. But basically, for the rest of our time together, I want you to focus in on verse 12. I think this is what makes our jaws drop. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. And we say that sounds pretty daunting and a bit confusing. What does it mean? First question, how are we meant to do that? These works he's been doing. And secondly... What does it mean that we will do these works and even these greater works than Jesus? So the first one is how we meant to do it and then we'll dig a bit deeper as to what it actually means to do them. How we meant to do it, I think, is that he sends his spirit to us. That's how we are enabled to live for him, to do his work. So 
Uh, verse 15 to 18, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Or verse 25 to 27, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So we're not left on our own. The Son asks the Father and the Father sends the Spirit. Or another advocate there, verse 16, verse 26 as well. The advocate word comes from the language of the courtroom. It's a the idea of being a helper, a representative, a counsellor, we get in some translations. So he's to be an advocate who comes, and he is another one like Jesus. Verse 16. He's one who's come to represent Jesus to us, almost. The two are so closely linked that Jesus can say, verse 17, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. As the Spirit comes and lives in his people, it's as if Christ is there, represented by him. And then we're strengthened, then he helps us to obey his commands and to do the works that he's been doing. Now, what do these works mean that Jesus has been doing? Well, do you remember what the signs have all been about through John, the works that have been going on? They have been showing us who Jesus is. They've been showing us that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, trusting in him, we might have life in his name. So, as his people do his works now, that means we do things that show the world who Jesus is. We carry on his work by his power. We do the sorts of things that bear witness to Jesus and his identity. They will point people to Jesus, and through Jesus, to the Father. It might be as simple as we saw a couple of weeks ago with foot washing. The cross, we said, was our model for community. It might be as simple as last week, just loving one another, displaying the glory of the cross through how we treat each other. Humbling, costly, messy, other-centred Christian life. Works that point to Jesus and who he is. And we say, okay, why are they greater than what he's been doing? Notice how verse 12 continues. It continues, because I am going to the Father. So because of his cross, resurrection, ascension, and then as he sends his spirit, then the works that we do will be greater than Jesus's. But why is that? Well, flick on with me to John chapter 20, and verse 21 to 23, and I wonder whether these verses will help us to see why the works that Christians do, this side of the cross, will be greater than the works of Jesus. Jesus commissions his disciples to continue his work, and he says in 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. So by receiving the Holy Spirit, and in his power, they are to impart forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus on the basis of his cross and resurrection. So my reading of it is, the greater works that he does, well, never, or that we do, sorry, that never before in the history of the world has anyone ever been forgiven by faith in the already crucified, already risen, already reigning, already indwelling Christ. So life after the cross will mean a different kind of living, a new kind of living. The kind of living that Jesus came to bring about. We have his advocate, the Holy Spirit living in us. And it means that our works of love, our message of life, has come as the, ful- the fulfilment of what Jesus came to do. They will point people to the glory of Jesus. We will be, if you like, the instrument of forgiveness on the basis of the finished work of the cross. This will be new. This will be greater than Jesus' earthly signs. Because this is what he came to accomplish. This is what he came for by his death and resurrection. He wants them to have humble confidence to do greater works than him as they are empowered by the Spirit and they point people to the cross to find forgiveness of sins. That's what they're to be getting on with. That's what we're to do as Christians now. Just a couple of thoughts as we think that through perhaps in light of where we are as a church at this point and what it means for us, potentially. The first is that it is utterly vital that Jesus is our focus. He is where we are to look. In him we have confidence to be right with God, to be with the Father, ultimately, to take us to be with him. The moment that our focus is our strategic planning, or our abilities, or our clever arguments, or whatever, it will be our downfall. That will be a danger. And so have confidence in Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. He is the only one who can bring you life now and life forever. So trust him. Even if that means we lose our friends. Even if that means that doors will be shut on us. Because we keep saying, well, Jesus is unique. Jesus is the only one who's ever been to the Father. He's the only one who can ever get you there. Keep trusting in Jesus. It's so easy to get diverted onto other things particularly when we have uncertainties about the future, particularly where there will be meetings and discussions and plans about what we might be doing. Keep focusing on Jesus. Have a humble confidence in him and remember where he will take you. second thing is to have a humble confidence in in the advocate, in, in the spirit that he sends to us. Jesus is gone. He's now with the Father. But how will the world know that what he said was true or that he is real? Well, it's through the lives of his people. It's almost like there's a circular argument going on in these verses. We've just scratched the surface, but it seems like the Father sends the Son to accomplish his plans. The Son is faithful, and he asks the Father to help his people. The Father sends his Spirit. The Spirit enables his people to do the works that point people to the Son. People see the Son, they see he is the way, the truth, the life, they trust him, and the Father is glorified as the, as the family grows. And so our challenge is to live in such a way 
that people see how brilliant Jesus is. To do these greater works that we point people to Christ, that we point people to the place they can find forgiveness, the relationship they were made for. Just as, just as Jesus' works in John's Gospel show the world what it's all about, show the world his glory, his identity, so, so our little works, spirit-empowered, living for Jesus now, show the world who Jesus is, his identity. And it strikes me, this is very ordinary, everyday stuff. It's you in the office. As he, as he enables you consistently to offer grace to that person who really winds you up. Or, or as he helps you to, to love people in a really costly way. Or as you openly and without strings attached, forgive people. Or as you calmly and gently and honestly and sensitively answer your family's questions and point them to Christ. These seem to be the, the greater works, I think, that he's talking of. Pointing people to Christ. To the place they can find forgiveness. And if you're anything like me, that all feels pretty daunting. So I suggest we pray. Let's do that now.